Getting a Taste for It by Chris Roberts. It had been 25 years since Alicia and Brian met, although it was some time after that that they started stepping out together. A staffing crisis in Nabara's social security office had sent Brian south to St Giles on the edge of Soho. Even though they were part of the same organisation, there was a palpable difference between the staff Brian was used to and the suave Denmark Street workers. The men sported sophisticated haircuts, and the women's shoes were of an altogether higher status than the DMs favoured by his colleagues in Kentish Town. They even walked differently. Not quite catwalk, but certainly with a haughtiness that made Brian feel, once again, like a provincial arriving in a city for the first time. Alicia was the first person Brian remembered meeting. Her hair was feathered into a post-punk quiff, Gothic flourishes were already appearing on her bright clothes, and those beautiful boots from Red or Dead must have cost a month's wages. A man called Neil Dennison took Brian around, and it was almost as if he sensed Brian's fears, because he was terribly supportive and stressed how quickly Brian would get used to it there. Neil's clothing also reassured Brian, because, unlike that of his colleagues, it was much more North Camden comfortable than St Giles Sophisticate. Brian was completely in awe of Alicia and her colleagues, who spoke of pubs, clubs and shebeens, taboo, blitz, that he had never heard of. Before then, he'd secretly rather prided himself on his Soho knowledge, and in Kentish Town had been something of an authority with his time-out data and city limits wisdom. Back in dependable Kentish Town a month or so later, he found himself reversing roles and escorting Neil, who found it a good deal easier there than Brian had in the West End. In the aftermath of Neil's arrest, Brian and Alicia really got to know each other amid the flying memos, heartfelt discussions, group hugs, plenaries, sessions, meetings ordinary and extraordinary, and offers of help. All the staff who'd ever worked with Neil, all the staff who'd ever worked in Camden job centres and their relatives had been offered counselling. Under the circumstances, it wasn't surprising that people got together, kept the situation in-house, and huddled around their shared trauma. There was, of course, the shock of finding out that a work colleague had been one of Britain's top serial killers. But beyond that, there was the issue of the meat pies. It had been a tradition at staff functions and special occasions for workers to bring a dish and some booze. For most people, this entailed a swift trip to Tesco's for sausage roll and crisps. But the more culinary creative brought in homemade fancies, cakes, and in Neil's case, very tasty meat pies. One obvious result of the revelations after his arrest was that the percentage of vegetarians among Camden Council workforce, already higher than the national average, hit 80% in some departments. There were staff rooms in which all meat was banned and the mutton-eating minority had to scoff their sarnies and pariah corners away from the vision of vegan vigilantes. Even those who had been vegetarian all through the trade pie years, as they were referred to, were not particularly smug. This was because their partners, or at least people they'd snogged on the nights in question, a few Christmas doozers back in Alien as a job centre jamboree, were carnivores. 
among this general fright and the calculating of how much people had eaten and what were the odds that any of the dishes had actually been fricassee of a rent boy, Brian and Alicia found themselves oddly apart from the others. They were not particularly affected by the panic or worried by the possibilities. Bit of a fuss about not much, Brian had told one counsellor, who advised him not to repeat this to his colleagues. He had only done so once, and luckily it was through Alicia, who concurred and added that there wasn't much that could be done about it now, because whatever it was had passed long out of their systems and graduated the finishing school of the sewage works. By now, in all probability, it was so thoroughly decomposed that the same molecules had probably re-entered the food chain as an organic carrot. Brian was amused by this refreshing outlook. He also found something exciting about this powerful, she'd risen to area manager, slightly older, outspoken woman. They had both changed since their first meeting, and although Brian was still overawed, he could now at least talk to her and look at her at the same time. For Alicia's part, she always enjoyed being looked at and talked to by an obviously interested and sympathetic younger man. These early meetings after group seminars and training courses led to drinks after work, cinema trips, walks at weekends, dancing and sex, though not necessarily in that order. Alicia had decided to have Brian the day of the first crisis meeting, the events and all that talk of firm meat acted as an aphrodisiac for her. And she hadn't failed to spot the cool thrill in Brian's voice in contrast to the appalled tones of their other workmates. One of the advantages of being in a senior position and having a relatively lengthy record of work in the same place is an unbeatable knowledge of which rooms are likely to be unoccupied at any given time. So it was that Alicia fucked Brian roughly over the desk of the chief sanitation engineer, making sure that when she'd finished riding him, he knelt in front of her to clean up her pipes. It was a few weeks later that they had their next assignation. Alicia organised for Brian to be kept late at his office in Theobald's Road when she arrived in a long mag with nothing underneath but her underwear and with some handcuffs in her pocket. Have come a make a claim, she had begun. After that, their sessions became more regular, Alicia demanding more regular and emergency appointments. After several years of living together, they were able to take advantage of a shake-up in both London local government and housing. Camden Council, in a bid to solve its housing crisis, was bribing people to move out of the area by offering them cash and a bigger home. So it was that Alicia was able to swap her one-bedroom flat on the crumbling Somerstown estate for a three-bedroom detached property on the coast near Margate and wrangle positions on Kent's social services for both Brian and herself. Life was duller than it had been in London, but the spare bedrooms and greater space allowed them to entertain at home more, and Kent was full of can-accommodate, bi-curious couples. The temptations were greater too. In the extreme goth clubs they'd begun to frequent in London, they could indulge, even in the AIDS years, something of their passion for human flesh by biting or drinking the blood of a surprisingly large number of volunteers. It was Brian who had first proposed Operation Homeless Feed, but Alicia who perfected it and carried it to its logical extreme. No one likes to be alone at Christmas. No one's meant to be. It's a peak time for suicides. 
People often make a new start afterwards in the new year. I'll go back to the family home. Let's check the records to see who might do. So, in the month before Christmas, they would troll the list of claimants to find people who weren't from the area, who were unlikely to be missed, and crucially, were homeless at the right time. If need be, this could be precipitated by judicious withholding of a housing check, resulting in a perfectly timed eviction. Where else would the claimant run but the social, where Alicia and Brian would reel them in with an offer accommodation over the festive period? Not all of them ended up in the pot, but a good many did, and the couple had learned from Neil's disposal mistakes. This meant that Brian made a great many fishing trips with his special bait, every January. He never even minded if some fish got away, for he knew that someone out there would be eating what he had put back in the food chain.